Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So Lee Perry. Lee Perry. Lee Perry. 85 years old. Man who used to, man who used to uh, uh, attach pieces of broken mirror to his hat and clothes in order to reflect his soul. A walking <laughs> work of art. What a great man. Hey, who would have thought he would survive till 85, to be honest? Chaotic life. Never a dull moment with Lee Perry. I, I first came across him, I suppose probably in the early 70s, and uh, I, I got a record uh, called Cow Thief Skank, uh, which I think was, I think it was originally put out under the name of The Upsetters, which is one of the names he used, but I think yeah. it, was, it was subsequently Charlie Ace and The Upsetters or whatever. And anyway, so anyway, it's a Lee Perry production. And it started, if you listen to it, with this, this, this gospel group that seemed to have no relation to the rest of the wild reggae record that came afterwards. Now, it's only subsequently I realized that the reason this was different was at the beginning of Kathy Skank by Lee Perry. What you hear is actually the Staples Singers, which he just hoiked straight off a Staples Singers record. And the reason he did that is the Staples Singers hit record, I'll Take You There, begins with a bass figure, which is pinched off a Lee Perry record earlier on, you know, no. which is pinched off Liquidator by Harry J, the Harry J All-Stars, which is the tune that I think Chelsea Football Club still run out to the, onto the pitch too. That's and, fantastic. And so that was his revenge. I'm going to do a tune about thieves, and I'm going to start by thieving something off a Staples Singers record. To uh, you know, to get my revenge on them for apparently having done the same thing with my record years That's earlier. Genius, <laughs> subversive gag that so few people would have got as well, isn't it? Well, it's like fifty years later we kind of talking about. Well, we're it talking now. about it now. But at the at the time, you just thought, oh, this is a record. It's just strange things happen on records. And the at the time, you don't forget in nineteen seventy one or whatever. There was no means for that kind of uh, news to get around to anybody. You know what I mean? It wasn't written about on paper, and, and there wasn't any alternative to paper. You know, so it's only it's only years later you discover that. So you know, the career of Lee Perry was absolutely littered 
with uh, with little things like that because he, he really was, you know, he was literally never a dull moment, Lee Perry. Um, what's your favourite Lee, Lee Perry record? Well, I've got loads, actually. Um, I, I like Police and Thieves enormously, and I like oh, it yeah. partly because, um, if I remember rightly, Junior Mervyn wandered into, what well, I suppose was probably Black Ark, actually, to audition that record and to play him a, or just play him a version of it, play him a tape of it, whatever. And he loved it so much that he recorded it that afternoon. Don't you think that's amazing? So he Fair just enough. pulled together that group. He said, we're doing it now. Pulled together yeah. that group. And when just in a few hours, it was finished. And it made me think that some of the best, most exciting, freshest records, um, Tutti Frutti, House of the Rising Sun, Twist and Shout by the Beatles, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Those things are all partly because they're just captured in a moment. Don't they? Captioned oh, as well absolutely. as it takes. Yeah, can't come back tomorrow. I love that. And I love Fisherman by the Congos, which is, I think, is absolutely from the heart of the Congos. That the whole heart of the Congos record is amazing. The space and that kind of eerie, sinister sound effects, and the and that weird, weird combination of the bass voice and the falsetto voice are absolutely incredible. I, think. I love roast fish and cornbread. Oh right, go on. I, I, well, it's just it's just roast fish and cornbread. Yeah, that's pretty much the whole idea, you know. I think that came out. I think that was on the Lee Perry record, wasn't it? Called Super Ape, I think it was. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, it's just roast fish and cornbread. That's all it is, you know. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a tune in praise of what was clearly. Uh, the upsetter's favourite food at the time. At the time. Know, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's all the idea you need to make a fantastic record. We're going to make a record called Roast Fish and Cornbread. I commend it to absolutely everybody. It. And I love all those experiments that's oversaturating the tapes, distortion and feedback, all the sound effects, putting drums through echo chambers. They're wonderful. There's a bit on Children Crying by the Congos where he slows down the tape for Crying Baby until it roars like a lion. Just <laughs> such fun, don't you think? Just sit there, this kind of alchemist. Absolutely. In, in his and lair. Incredible guy. As you say, what an innings. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So we were talking to Matt Berry the other day for a, a word in your attic. And it's really interesting. You know, he was born in 1974, so he sees the pop music of the 70s and, and the 80s in a completely different way, obviously from a small child's perspective, certainly in the 70s. So in the way we did uh, when we heard it as adults, you know, he talked about Kate Bush as being frightening, the yeah. intensity of her stare, you know. It's like Pete Perfidi's book, you know, Broken Greek. He, he talks about... Um, you know what his 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 what he gets from pop music is so different. There's a bit where he talks about Martha and the Muffins Echo Beach. You see, it's a, it's a confirmation that adulthood was disappointing. You know, it's basically you have to spend your time at work. My job is very boring. I'm an office clerk. Do you remember that? The only exciting thing is going to Echo Beach. He talks about Sting as being a kind of savior because he's uh, he's helping people avoid prostitution with songs like Roxanne. You know, and he's terrified of the song. Can't stand losing you because it's about suicide. As is Terry, Terry Jack's season in the sun was terrifying because it was about imminent death. And he says at one point that, that every emotional challenge in his life before the age of 10 is represented by an ABBA song. And Matt Berry said the same thing. You remember Matt Berry was saying yeah, yeah. ABBA was profoundly, almost disturbingly sad. And I thought that was true, actually. We've been thinking about ABBA obviously quite a lot this week because it's in the news, you know. And uh, people think of it as this breezy and upbeat and spangly concept in their fantastic jumpsuits you know but they're mostly really sad 
songs are fundamentally it, melancholy songs. It, well, it's interesting. I, I, have you heard the new the new? I have. I heard them. I thought they were really good. They're really I, good. I mean, I only really listened to them once. You know, God knows. Really, one yeah, sounds yeah. like Dancing Queen. Was it called Don't Shut Me Down? Sounds like Dancing Queen, really. But, uh, but, but the, the the thing I'd like to add to this is, do you not think, Midlard, <laughs> that all pop music eventually, given distance, pop music plus distance equals sadness? Oh, right, okay. It just always does. Because it's melancholy by its very nature. The idea of listening to an old pop tune is a melancholy thing because you're kind of recalling something. Well, it is. It's the passage of time. And you're recalling, and mostly you're, you're, you're rooting yourself in that moment, aren't you? Reliving that moment. It's like hearing Dancing Queen. Dancing Queen brings back the heat wave of 1976 to me. Right. That's when that was a hit, and don't go breaking my heart, silly love songs, and all those things. And those things remind me of that particular moment. But yeah, it's about it's about the passage of time, and it's about reflecting on your life, isn't it? And you know, if you, if you're listening to old pop music, that tends to be why you do it to to feel melancholy about it, actually, rather than to feel happy about it. Yes, and it's very very often if it's happy in the in the first instance. It's melancholy later on. And also melancholy, as we've discussed this many times, it, it's a very kind of adult feeling, isn't it? It is. Six-year-olds don't feel melancholy. No, they don't. <laughs> They're completely in the moment. You know, 60-year-olds feel melancholy, no, melancholy absolutely all the time. Depth, resonance and regret. Yeah, absolutely. It's regret, it's regret it? you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what I should have done or I should have bought this record or I should not have bought this record. Yes. All that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, so as we've said many times before, we tend to we tend to overestimate sadness and underestimate happiness. And if we want to approve of something, we invest it with sadness, whether it's there or not. Because that seems more more uh, worthwhile, more worthwhile yeah, of, our kind of, of our kind of adult responses. Um, but I think Abba also, I think they're a melancholy concept because um, it's a bit like Fleetwood Mac actually, because the concept of the group is completely tied to the idea of the internal relationships, mm. and therefore a lot of those songs were sung about each other in real life situations that that we can all connect to. And I think that, you know, the soap opera of ABBA, like the soap opera of Fleetwood Mac, is what gives some of it its kind of durability and its lasting appeal. Don't you think? Gives but it a also, sense of substance. I suppose so. I suppose so. But also, you now have to deal with a fact of pop life is what I would call the afterlife of any pop phenomenon. Yeah. That you have, you know, you have the living career... And then if you're fortunate, you have an afterlife. Lots of groups don't have an afterlife at all. 10CC don't have an afterlife. 10CC were really popular for a long period of time, and now hardly anybody thinks about them at all. The Beatles really popular, and people think about them more now than they did even back then. And ABBA, the same thing. You know, hugely, huge, huge afterlife. You know, which now the question is, and here I I refer you to a thing I was listening to this week actually. Um, Tom Holland, who we had as a guest yes, on historian, uh, yeah, on uh, Word of Your Attic, 
Uh, he does a podcast called The Rest is History with Dominic Sandbrook, uh, another historian. And they they just happened to do one this week about the Beatles. And, uh, and I think Tom's argument is they will be remembered, you know, 200 years' time. People will still be aware of the Beatles, some people. I, and Dominic was saying, no, they won't. Uh, you know, because we just don't know if any of that stuff's gonna gonna outlast its lifetime or hold the time when the protagonist, two of the protagonists, certainly is still alive. And uh, you know who knows? Who knows how those things will be? But uh, but the point being with ABBA, because they're all still here, yeah, their their legacy still you know holds really good. Whether it's still the same in 20 years' time when we must assume they won't all still be here, I do not know. And I don't know about the Beatles either. You know, it's it's a, you know, it's like the Chinese diplomat famously said, you know, when asked about what was the outcome of the French Revolution, the most significant outcome of the French Revolution. <laughs> too, said, early to it's too early to yeah. tell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a bit similar, really, isn't it? With both the That's Beatles. An point. So you're saying that uh, that, uh, and it's a sad thought that when there is no longer a living Beatle, that that might change our relationship with their legacy and their memory. I think it might, might do. It might. I think it might do. It's um, possible. Uh, you know. But, yeah, the uh, fact that all four ABBA are still there. What do you think about the um, the avatars uh, business? I think it's. I think it's so interesting. I mean, I think I think it's fantastic that they can do that, and it's their own decision. You know, a lot of the time when it's uh, people are producing avatars and holograms and stuff, the, the person that they're doing it of, by definition, obviously is not there or they wouldn't be doing it. And, uh, and and they didn't get their permission and you wonder if they would have approved. But with ABBA, obviously, it's their idea. What I failed to understand is that they're talking about how they, they danced their entire routine, is this right, wired up with sensors that were then filmed, that were then used as the foundation for what well, this the is, avatar this is- show. Well, A, I don't believe that. I'm sorry. If that's, I do not believe that the four members of ABBA worked out an entire routine that they could dance. And if they had, then why don't they actually do it? <laughs> well, this is this is how they this is how they make video games, isn't it? When they, uh, you know, your football video games. Yeah. Um, you know, they they rig up footballers to to these sensors, don't they? And have them and have them do bicycle kicks and so forth, yeah. so they can. They can then use that as the basis of um, uh, uh, of the animation. Listen, this is beyond my competence. I wouldn't possibly claim to know whether they can do or not, but I wouldn't be surprised. Just presumably, they do the dance, they do the dance routine very slowly, and then it gets speeded yeah. up. Speeded I mean, I don't blame the them for not wanting to, to be on stage. I mean, you could argue that, that the thing about ABBA is it's a stage show. And the idea that it wouldn't be a stage show, it would just be the four of them standing there, would be disappointed. They could stand there and sing it, possibly, and have some spectacle behind them in acting it all. But I don't blame them for not wanting to go on the road at all. But wonder if no, it'll work. No, and, uh, of course, you do realise that, that Alex Gold is recording absolutely all these conversations that you and I have. So yeah. that. So that when we too shuffle off this mortal coil, he can continue presenting us as animatronics, you know, for, <laughs> forevermore, <laughs> talking endless bollocks about popular music till the end of time. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So 50 years ago, pretty much this week, I think, Judy Sill put out her first album. What a story, Judy Sill. 
Because I can remember seeing her on the old grey whistle test doing uh, Jesus was a crossbow. Jesus was a crossbow. And knowing, of course, as you did at the time, absolutely nothing about her. And I can't even remember finding much in the music press about her. And certainly if I did, it wouldn't tell me anything about her backstory. But uh, the story, if I remember, was from quite a wealthy family. Yeah. Quite well. Kind of middle class. Father, I think, died when she was eight. A mum remarried. She got on very badly with the stepfather. Big rows and left. Met a guy at school with whom, I'm fairly sure, she committed armed robberies. Of this is kind of Bonnie and Clyde stuff of liquor stores and gas stations, right? So they would go to these places and hold them up with a gun, right? She was then arrested. She was still at school. Went to reform school for nine months, where I think she learned to play the church organ. That was part of the beginning of her career, really. Then she left. She then moved with an acid dealer when her mum died. Developed a, a heroin addict, I think got involved in in various. I don't know. I don't know how you describe it. Really, is there are allegations she became a sex worker, but I think it's probably an exaggeration. But she, anyway, she 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 turned to adventurous ways to to uh, to, to make some money to feed her habit. Really, she got arrested for uh, check scams and forgeries and went to jail. So she's then in jail, and then after that left and and quite quickly, somehow through Crosby, Stills and Nash, I think got a tour support and got a record deal. But I mean, what interests me about, about Judy Sill is that, is that if she was launched today, if you were launching Judy Sill, now in this world where everybody's history is immediately available, you'd have to acknowledge that those things happened. And if you had to acknowledge them, would you then present her as a survivor of these yes, experiences, someone who's overcome challenges and through yeah, strength? Yeah. Yeah. I think you would because most people who are signed today are launched as being representative of something, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Of, of yeah. I- identifying with something that they then write songs about. And that would then colour the, all the songs that she had to write because those would be about, you know, the suffering of the past and whatever. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. I um, I was talking to Rob Dickens uh, and um, a few years ago, and Rob uh, used, to, was, used to be the boss of Warner Brothers over here. And, uh, you know, very senior person and very well-connected person. And he told me that he was once, you know, when did Judy Sill die? I mean. Oh, I can't remember that. Um, anyway, this must have been sometime yeah. in the 90s, I think. Yeah. He was, uh, he was at Warner Brothers in Los Angeles. And he needed to get hold of a tape or something out of the tape library. And so he descended into the bowels of the building. And uh, you know where the where the archive was, and um, and went and he had a little chit and so forth to go and pick up whatever he was supposed to pick up, and um, and the woman served him and uh, and she went away and got and came back with the thing and he looked at her and he thought, I've seen you before. No. And he goes, You're Judy Sill, aren't you? She goes, Yes, I am. No. Yes. I don't know whether it was a short-term job or whatever, you know. But she was, uh, she was the librarian in um, in the Warren Brothers archive. That's amazing, <laughs> you know. Because uh, I did you know about her story at the time? Well, I, I think records, I, it's quite interesting, you know. That people, she is one of those things, one of those artists. It's a bit like Nick Drake. That now you know has a, a sizable following. I know one of your sons is a big fan yeah. of Judy Sill, you know, and um, 
Yeah, I think there's only there are only two records in our lifetime. I think that's right. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, and the story subsequently told is that she offended David Geffen, who was the boss of her record label, and therefore he buried her career. I'm not sure it's as simple as that at all. No. Um, but you know, there weren't that many ways that artists like Judy Sill could be presented to the public back in the in the in the day. You know, and she wasn't uh, she, a conventional major on stage looker. I mean, she looked not she at all. Faintly looked like a kind of librarian. I can remember there you go. when I discovered that's what she ended up, that being. She up being there. But I remember when you know, I, I remember being astonished actually that somebody who looked so kind of unprepossessing should have had this extraordinarily colourful and adventurous life. And, and anyway, you know, but she came over to Britain. and she did the whistle test. You know, first series of, I would imagine. And, uh, and she might have done the odd other guest shot and whatever, and she might have turned up on being interviewed on Radio 1 and so forth. So she didn't get much exposure. But in those days, the people who were who were listening would have heard those things. And so I knew who she was, and I knew the Judy Seal record, and we all knew Jesus was a crossmaker. He got covered by other people, you know. And, and, you know, so... But, it, but the point is, it's like Nick Drake. We couldn't all afford to go out and buy records. You know, it wasn't, you know, you, the, 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 the universe of people listening to those kind of records back in those days was quite small was. compared to how it is today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there are obviously no means like social Just media. Just a few thousand. To, to pass, absolutely. A few thousand knowing and a few hundred buying, if if that many. You know what I mean? It, it was just quite small. It was quite localised. But we knew who she was. 
we didn't know all those lurid details because people wouldn't have written about those lurid details in those days, really. No, they At wouldn't. That That's point, true, they wouldn't. Uh, they just wouldn't have done it. They, people wouldn't have talked about it in interviews. It wouldn't have been written about by Oxford at all. And even, if, all, even you know? if she'd been asked about all that stuff, she wouldn't have probably have volunteered any of that information yeah, anyway. It's like you know, somebody who had a significantly higher profile of Judy Sill in 1971 is Joni Mitchell. And Joni Mitchell's you know, headlined at the Isle of Wight and all this kind of stuff. We still don't know very much about her. We certainly didn't know. Didn't know she had a daughter. We know, nobody knew all that sort of no, stuff. No, no. Um, so, you know, different times. But the point being about Judy Sill, that first record is still fantastic. It absolutely, you know, stands up. Stands up 50 years li- at, uh, later. Unlike, may I say, you know, it, ungraciously, unlike Iron Butterfly. <laughs> That's a brilliant, brilliant gear change. Yeah, butterfly Ron Bushy, the it's drummer who died. I, you know, I can still remember that record coming out and the excitement. You see, that's a and, bizarre phenomenon. Uh, Iron Butterfly were for about a year huge, weren't they? Well, all because of Inner Garden of Vida. I can remember record. sitting around nodding sagely when we discovered that Inner Garden of Vida was some kind of distortion of In the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. So you thought, wow, this is so deep and significant. <laughs> and now you look back at it, it's just the most monumentally dull bit of it riffing, is, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the music for which the adjective lumpen it is was uh, precisely advised, you know. It really is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dunderhead rock, you know. But yeah, you know, but listen, there's always been a market for Dunderhead rock. There still is today, yeah. Um, and you know, and Iron Butterfly supplied it. Two things about Iron Butterfly, may I just add? One, they had a very significant uh, part in the development of British prog, which is this. Well, they came to Britain in, I think, 1969, 1970, something like that. And uh, they were going back to the States. And they, I think they were breaking up at this point. But they didn't, no longer needed the thing that they had, which nobody else had, which was they had their own PA, their own PA system. They'd brought it over from the States. God, oh, they that. flogged it to somebody, didn't they? Who, who was- they flogged it to, yes, who were the sports That's right. Group. That's right. And, you know, this was, I can remember going to see Yes with what had been, you know, they've got Iron Butterfly's PA, you know. All the real heads are in the corner going, I tell you what, Iron Butterfly's PA. But but it's true because bands didn't have that kind of thing. In those days, they hired it and so forth. But so Iron Butterfly, you know, the most frequently heard complaint when you went to gigs in those days. Afterwards, people, how was it? Went to see, you know, went to see Tiana Nog and Jethro Tull or whatever. Bass wasn't loud enough. People, people always say the PA wasn't very good. Yeah, it just began. It was the late sixties head way of showing. Well, that was off. the kind of knowing thing it to was. say to give the impression that a I go to a lot of gigs and b yes. I'm I had sonic clarity yes. that I'm, I'm you know I'm not some giddy little teenager. But there was yet. a lot of truth in that. Because yeah, generally, yeah. generally speaking, you know, live music was not very well balanced at all. You know, people yeah. were very, very experienced at doing it. You know, yeah. it, it had been it had been packaged tours and so forth. And it was people are only starting to get to grips with it really. So when Yes had Iron Butterfly's PA, that somehow seemed to account for the fact that Yes sounded better 
than anybody else did. Of course, the real reason, yes, sounded better than anybody else does, was they rehearsed far longer than anybody else they, did. They were slightly better. <laughs> they were <laughs> slightly better. <laughs> but they uh, but they also worked very hard at it. But also, can I, the other point about Iron Butterfly that I, I'd like to draw the attention of the massive too is they are probably the first example of of what became a, a, a small but significant little uh, subgenre of, uh, of rock and roll, which is the band whose name is an ironic juxtaposition of an adjective and a noun. Okay? Yes. yes. Iron butterfly. Wow. Yeah. Iron butterfly. Hence, lead, lead zeppelin. zeppelin. It, yes. it is just the same thing. You also had at the same time mighty baby, mighty baby. Where are they? <laughs> and then that, then then the joke, heavy jelly. You remember heavy yeah, jelly? I, do, I, do. I keep singing the same old song. Yeah. Same time, atomic rooster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Strawberry alarm clock. You know, ironic. This adjective has no place with this noun. Um, Chocolate watch band. Chocolate watch band. Yeah. So yeah, and. Um, there was, a heavy, was, there was a heavy metal group called Sweet Poison. I can remember them. Oh, right. Well, there you go. Curved air. Possibly. I, I, I don't know. Possibly. It's an adjective and it's a noun yeah, that's not, yeah, it doesn't maybe, normally apply yeah, to. Yeah, maybe. It may be. Um, but there, there was that, Leopard. That, that, possibly. It's a bit later, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But that was very definitely the thing in the in the late 60s, early 70s. Well, and of course, no more, you know, no more um, successful example of it than Led Zeppelin, who, of course, were, you know, it was a Keith Moon joke, wasn't it? You know, you'll go down, go like, down a, like a Led Zeppelin. You'll go down like a lead balloon, then extend the joke. You'll go down like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody decides that you can't have lead because the Americans will pronounce it lead Zeppelin. Yeah. So you've got to take out the A out of the out of the adjective there. So there you are. Well, there uh, we are. So, so I think any member of, of Iron Butterfly would be thrilled to think that in some small corner of a foreign field, us two are, <laughs> are remembering them for their significant contributions. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. So any other business? And you've just found... Well, I've just found this. This is amazing, isn't it? This wow. is an ABBA. This is my wife, Claire's bar of ABBA soap. There it is. Look. Isn't that amazing? And it must have been bought in, I suppose, about 1975. <laughs> so that's nearly, that's nearly 50 years old. And it's a bar of soap. Untouched. There it is. Still in its wrapper with ABBA on the... Uh, Printed on the on the bar. Is that amazing? You see, I, there I you are. You've got a very nice house, Mark. But I'm saying that soap's worth more than your house. Worth more than the house because <laughs> you've kept it. it in your in the original package. Never been, never been opened. I know it's pretty amazing, isn't it? So, so that's something. Uh, got questions from the massive here, and Alex, you can answer this. Uh, Steve Cabman wants to know what happened to sax solos in pop. They seem to disappear around 1995. They probably oh, did, didn't it? Is there any point after Baker Street? I don't think there is. <laughs> well, that didn't put Spandau Ballet off, did it? No, absolutely. Stand up. Spandau Ballet did it. And uh, Bruce Springsteen. Probably ABC. Yeah, yes, ABC. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, actually, go on. There's, 
popular indie outfit, the Zootons, had a had a beautiful sax player called Abby Harding, and uh, she was a big feature of the band. They they were the guys who did Valerie. Oh yeah, originally. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So sax did go indie had sax on it. So sax was very eighties. Yes, Very associated with the 80s and, and then became unfashionable. And you can find uh, readers if you really want to, if you're really stuck for something to do and you want to spend the rest of your life on on YouTube, you can find an old pop video in which Mark Allen plays the part of a saxophone <laughs> player. I do. Well, I used uh, to play the saxophone. I was a saxophone player in a band. And I got the job. That's right. Uh, what was she called? Nona Hendricks. Nona Hendricks. Former of member of La Belle. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, she had a record out called You're the Only One I Ever Wanted, I think it was. And I'm the saxophone player in that video in a zoot suit. It's hilarious. Uh, kind of, uh, leaning against I'd, a kind of lamppost. You know. Leaning on a lamppost in the corner oh, of the no, street in case a little, little lady comes by. Uh, Robert Did Reed, you see the thing from Keith Antley about Jonathan Richmond? Oh, go on, yes. That yes, was amazing. Yes. Keith sent a little thing about uh, uh, organisers of uh, uh, an Olympia Washington festival had advertised that they were having a gig, I think it was just a couple of days ago, that, that uh, one of the people they got, his first post-pandemic performance was going to be Jonathan Richmond. And then the day before, um, a DJ got in touch with, the local DJ got in touch with his management and said, can we interview him? It's very exciting. You know, it's a build-up thing. And they knew nothing about it. So an imposter... A Jonathan Richmond impersonator had got himself onto the bill. I mean, what what was he hoping to achieve? I think that's an amazing story. It's, was he hoping to actually get on there, perform, and convince people he was Jonathan Richmond in order to boost his career as Jonathan Richmond sounded like? I really don't know. It must was, he, be- was he hoping to get half the money up front and then do a runner? Do you think his, his motivation was the same as these clowns who who pop up in test match cricket and, you know, blunder their way onto the bowl onto ball, the field yeah. of play and, yeah, 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 and then bowl at the batsman and sort of thing. I mean, they are basically just twats. You know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too fine a point on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's as simple as that. Paul Murray, uh, and again, Alex, I, I defer to you in this. Okay. And Paul Murray, <laughs> Paul Murray wants to know, who are the tallest and most vertically challenged musical bands? Not sure uh, about the tallest. He says perhaps any band that features Mick Fleetwood. But he's selling the, he says that the tellingly titled Elf featuring Ronnie James Dio would be a strong contender for, uh, for shortest. Shortest that- bands? Oh, surely Steve Marriott was only five foot two, wasn't he? The small faces have got to be small the faces, weren't they? All yeah, they're all four yeah. of them are five foot three. Or I, something. I've, I've worked with Kenny, and he's he's smaller than me, uh, and I'm pretty short. So, um, <laughs> it's the way Alex just said that really quietly. I've worked with him. I've, and he's I've worked with Kenny. <laughs> he's small. <laughs> really, he's really, really, they were really, 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 really small. Uh, yeah, so they were. They I were. suggest small faces, but tallest. Um, well, two of the strokes are massive. Julian Casablancas is like six foot three, I think, six foot four. Oh, really? Nick Valencia really? as well. Yeah, yeah. Two of them. If you notice, actually, uh, many of the strokes photos, you've got three of them kind of standing a little bit in front. They're kind of they're positioned in a way that makes them all look the same height, but they're, they're not all the same height. Uh, but two of them are giants, for sure. All um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So we've answered that question. And um, yes. Oh, what else have we got? Um, Poppy Swaratray says, with painters, novelists, filmmakers, often their work gets more lauded as they get older. 
Let's call them all mature work, whereas rock stars are uh, generally dismissed critically, at least beyond the age of about 35. Is that uh, true anymore, I wonder? I don't know. You think of people like Nick Lowe and Leonard Cohen and, you know... Nick Cave. Uh, Nick Cave. People just making better and better music as they get older. I mean, Neil, Neil Tennant had his first yeah, hit when he was 31. Yeah. yeah. The concept of the Pet Shop Boys has always been mature and adult, hasn't it, you know? Yeah. You kind of grow older with them. I don't know, but I mean, half the problem is that pop music is, is fiercely associated with, associated with youth, which is not true of painting and literature. In fact, it's slightly the opposite, that, that you have to be a certain age, supposedly, to be mature enough to be able to appreciate it, whereas pop music is aimed at somebody younger. And therefore, your relationships with pop music are forged in the white heat of youth, aren't they? And, uh, and that bands are constantly trying to recruit younger audiences. The Stones still kind of keep going in a way that, that 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 kind of replicates the way they were, if you like, which invites the comparison all the time between them and the old stones, don't you think? But I think it's largely because pop music is just thought of as being a young person's game. Grant Ryder says Lindsay Buckingham has just released a new single, but is there a market for him and other songwriters of a similar age? Have these become just vanity releases? I don't think I'd call it vanity, but I certainly don't think there's... You know, I think our old way of thinking about the market is rather dated, really. You know, it's the idea that people go to a record shop and think, oh, a new Lindsay Buckingham record. It sort of doesn't work like that at all, no. you know. Um, and But I think it's interesting that people still want to make records, even when there isn't a conventional market for them at all, you know, because that, that's what they do, isn't it? You know what I mean? And that's how your career is measured out, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like you know, novelists write novels, whatever, regardless of whether people buy them or, or read them or not. You know, it's just what they do. Tap, what, you can't turn off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm sure in the case of Lindsay Buckingham, they probably wish it was. Although, oddly enough, Lindsay Buckingham, interesting. I was thinking about this in Lindsay Buckingham, fabulously talented person. Has been for years and years and years, associated with so many great Fleetwood Mac records. Puts out, put out Lindsay Buckingham records. Even back in the day, nobody wanted them, did they? Not no. at all. Nobody wanted a Lindsay Buckingham record. Whereas they, they're all quite happy buying Lindsay Buckingham records made for Fleetwood Mac. You know, they're yeah. absolutely huge. It just did, it didn't spill over. Then again, but he only works in the concert of the Greek. You say that about all the Stone solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody was remotely interested. It yeah. just didn't feel right. You know? No, no, absolutely. So uh, there's a nice question about the decline. Which which groups have declined? Oh, go the on. most. I can't say that. Go on. I, I can't remember who it's from now, but it was. Um, Who's you know, which, declined which most? Yeah. Have you found the? Uh, now, hang on. I'm scrolling through. I can't find it. Because um, uh, you think I think the Beach Boys are a good example. You think how fantastic those Beach Boys records were. Good vibrations, God only knows, etc. And then even by the early seventies with Holland, which is meant to be the great comeback, a bit disappointing. And then my God, they started making records like Still Cruising in nineteen eighty nine. I please, Dave, never listen to that record. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you probably have. See, probably I've, got a copy. Al I know, is... I've always had the feeling with the Beach Boys, and this is unpopular theory with many people. <laughs> is that their period of, of creativity was the shortest of any of the great groups. It was about two years, really. You know, it kind of, it's pretty much all over with heroes and villains. Yeah. <laughs> and during that period before then, it's Pet Sounds, Beach Boys Today, Summer Days, Summer Nights, fantastic stuff, just wonderful stuff. 
and then it just stops. And I mean, so much, even things like Surf's Up was put out. It was, it was made up of fragments that they'd done earlier. You know what I mean? And and, and padded out with other stuff. Um, you know, the, the classic stuff is done in about uh, maybe three years. Mm. And it's the old theory that uh, I can't remember the name of the New Yorker writer. Who, uh, who had this theory that in in um, in pop music, as in all areas of entertainment, a career is three years, pretty much. Three years is about as long as the public can can concentrate on being enthusiastic about you. They may decide to be nostalgic for that feeling later on. That's a different thing. Yeah. But three years is roughly it. And I, I think there's a lot of truth. I do too. And uh, you know the exception the is, exception is the Beatles had three lots of three years. No, they had two three years. Two, no, three, two three years. That's true. Three years mop tops. Three years psychedelic adventurous. Yeah, it's as simple as that. It's two careers that just happen to move seamlessly from one to the next. Yeah. Um. So here we are, Alex. You're in Barcelona. I am. Yep. How's the weather? It's glorious. It's uh, it's always short. It's even shorts weather in the evening, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. I've uh, well, we're, we're all wearing shorts, but Mark and I are a bit chilly around the knees, aren't we? Because we're we back are in, a bit back in London, it's, but I think the winds sick with envy. Well, you know, res- respect for flying the shorts flag at home. Um, yeah, I think that, that that's yeah. commendable. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's glorious out here. Which is, yeah. So you sail tonight? Yeah, we we're off to Palma, Mallorca tomorrow. And then uh, we potter across the Mediterranean to the uh, to the western Italian coast uh, before rounding off with Sardinia and coming back again. So it's, it's not a bad trip. It's, it's not a bad way to spend the week slash three months. And how many times a week do you have to play? Uh, how many times have you done your Beatle week? Five times a week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at, at the moment. But that's, you know, it does change week on week. But broadly speaking, there's, there's about five shows a week. And that's that's fine. It's, it's great. And we've got the lovely cabins. We've got a balcony each. Fantastic way to make a living. That's oh, just so great. It's not bad. It's, there, there, there is such an irony in the fact that, 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 you know, the Beatles, when they were the Beatles, worked in Hamburg. <laughs> Playing every minute they were possible. Five yeah. hour sets. Yeah. Five hour sets. I know, I know. And then went back to that horrible DOS house or whatever. <laughs> Without even the most basic <laughs> hygiene and Without so a window. On. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, 60 years later, <laughs> imitating them on the ocean wave in circumstances of luxury where you only have to go and be them for about half an hour a week or something. <laughs> the rest of the time, you're sitting on your balcony with a large cocktail, watching the Mediterranean drifting past. Isn't that uh, lovely? Okay. <laughs> we all so, owe them. You more than most. You, you more than most. So uh, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already done so. Don't forget to leave comments on you know apple podcasts spotify anywhere where they invite comments because seriously those things do make a difference and if you'd like to join us as one of our patron supporters there are all sorts of additional benefits including taking part in in the friday night quiz and getting early access to all this material in glorious color where applicable 
and even more exciting things which are coming up uh, in the next few weeks, which we'll be able to um, announce details of in due course. So if you want to know about all this stuff, go to patreon.com. Word in your ear. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 